welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of Witts University in lovely Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And today we head up to London,、uh, where I'm. There's probably a nine out of ten chance that the weather isn't quite as nice in London as it is in Joburg or in here in Ho Chi Minh City.、Uh, but、uh, Henry Hall is back on the show with us again. And if you if you are in the China Africa space, then you're familiar with Henry's work for five years now as the editor of the China Africa News. That's ChinaAfricanews.com blog and newsletter. Uh, and also, Henry is also a, an expert consultant on resource issues in Africa, working、uh, you know in that space with the Chinese Africans and Westerners.、Uh, welcome back to the show, Henry. Thanks very much, and thanks for that kind introduction. And, and, and I know you've got a lot of fans out there. So before we kind of dive into our show,、um, you're going to be retiring your newsletter、uh, this year, right? I have done. I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm retiring over the next few months. I'm afraid. It's been a it's been a wonderful ride, and I, I think it's it's just been a fascinating、uh, fascinating time following Panafra over the years,、um, and I've seen an enormous amount of change in the discipline, and as at the current time, there's just enormous amount of fantastic work, and so I feel that now's the right time to hang my hat. Well, you know what? Hats off to you because you were doing this before anybody else was.、Uh, you know, low so many years ago, five years ago, which in the China Africa space is actually a very long time. So it was、uh, it was really great, and it was one of the, the resources that kind of got me interested in the topic. So so thank you for that, and、uh, we'll we'll kind of pour a little bit of.、Uh, I guess pour a forty for the、uh, for the China Africa newsletter.、Um, okay, <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about、uh, we're going to take right advantage of、uh, of Henry's expertise and going right into this concept of、uh, you know Sino African and tripartite partnerships in the mining industry. Now, before you turn off your podcast, please, please, please do not turn off your podcast. This is actually a very, <laughs> very interesting topic, and in part it's because there's been this dream of. You know the West and China cooperating together in Africa. Kobus, you and I have seen this in in the Guardian blog for a long time. We've seen it in a number of different places, and and then this idea that. You know, we're not competing against one another. We're actually working with one another. Well, certainly in the political space, we've seen some examples of that in、uh, South Sudan, Sudan, where the Chinese and the Americans have worked together.、Uh, but now, more and more in the resource space, there appears to be some some glimmers of hope that they would work together. So, let's just kind of get a big, broad overview, Henry, right off the top of: Is this something that is the idealism of the West, in particular, where these ideas a lot oftentimes come from? That you know, that they can cooperate. Collaboratively together in Africa, or is this just really a pipe dream? I, I think the major question that underlies my interest in China Africa and why so many people have been interested in China Africa is this question of why China is involved.、Um, and so much of my、um, studies in this area have come back to come back to that, trying to unpack the agenda involved in, in these relationships. And I think so often people make Sort of rash assumptions about China's interests in Africa, based on based on sort of older school interest or older school understanding of the sort of Cold War type narrative of communist versus capitalist in Africa. And in actuality, China is the workshop of the world, and it, need, it needs the resources to to maintain that.、Um, and in that regard, it's there's a there's a situation involving in many cases where interests can become aligned. Um, and I think far more often than not in Africa, 
there is uh, there is a strong potential for uh, an integration of interest between Western African and Chinese firms uh, or, or, or actors. Um, and I think the problems come where one or other of those feels excluded and, and then starts to create more noise, um, which often often subverts the real picture, but looks for a, looks for a scapegoat rather than focusing on the, the reality of a, of, of a, a simple clash of agendas. And why, you know, kind of what would the, the clash of agendas actually be? Like why, you know, seen from the outside, it looks like they, there's quite a lot of scope to work together, among other reasons, because they bring different strengths to the table, you know, and, uh, you know, they have different rela- historical relationships. So what is what actually, you know, kind of makes it impossible to cooperate? But I think, I think that sort of the resource example is a really interesting one for this. Um, so I think, I think there are three or three or possibly four key actors. You have the Chinese state um, and, its, and its state-run company. You have a Western multinational. You have the host government and you, and you have the communities. Um, for the host government, their interest is clearly to keep prices high and to develop its projects as quickly as possible as they're very often in need of, of quick resources. For the Western company, especially within the current context of of falling resource prices and and, uh, and 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 uncertain demand from China, as far as they perceive it, they've often been perceived to be delaying projects and looking to to keep prices high by doing that. But that's often come at the expense of new developments in Africa. Um, then, from the Chinese state interest, as as really a consumer, or as the sort of key motivation there being a consumer of resources, they want to keep prices low and therefore develop projects as quickly as possible and also get an ownership of assets so that any um, any sort of uh, monopsony condition sorry monopoly conditions of the uh, of the major resource firms in acting to keep prices high can be managed in that way um, so essentially the key point there is that China's in Chinese state-owned firms interests are better aligned with the African governments in forcing projects through um, so that can create a tension between the Western firms and a Chinese partner, or certainly between a Western firm and a Chinese competitor, um, where the, the Western firm is it doesn't want or it doesn't want the sort of pressure of being forced into producing quickly, um, and will blame it will look for um, look for sort of negative stories around potential Chinese involvement to to pollute or taint that that possibility of a Chinese firm taking over a project. Well, let me pick up very quickly on some of the tensions that you were talking about, and you really detail some of these quite eloquently uh, in a blog post that you did on your website at ChinaAfricanews.com. The title is Ironclad Mining Partnerships with Chinese Firms in West Africa. And, And the opening line in your blog, if I can read this, is partnerships between Chinese and Western firms in West Africa could prove beneficial for companies and host governments, but only if the partners are a good fit. Now, you just alluded to some of the challenges and tensions that are there. I also want to bring you to China, where there's been a very, very rocky history of joint ventures between, say, American and Western companies and and Chinese partners. There are severe differences in corporate culture. There are severe Mm -hmm. differences in accountability and governance and transparency and communication. And we've seen in Africa that that has been also a key problem uh, on the corporate sector as well, where Chinese companies, uh, you know, do things their own way. 
and and particularly because they are not accountable to shareholders or even some some sometimes public opinion because of their relationship with the Chinese state. Um, they're just their way of doing things is is so different than the traditional Western or international multinational corporate model. So I wonder. Uh, again, how much potential there really is for this, given the stark differences that exist between the two com- uh, corporate cultures and corporate histories and backgrounds? Absolutely. I, th- I think the key um, point here is that China or the Chinese state and, and the key, the larger Chinese state enterprises um, connected to it in, in the mining area are, are really, to my eye, showing a genuine interest in learning more about what best practice looks like in this area. And it's perhaps a it's perhaps a sort of apt comparison to look at Geely's takeover of Volvo in looking at gaining pure technical experience on how to improve their their car the cars that they build for, for foreign markets and to, to really expand in that way. And I think I think the the partnership between Chanelco and Rio Tinto is an excellent example of this. Um Chanelco has worked very hard and with Rio Tinto for a long time to seek a way in which they can partner effectively. Um, and that's led to this major partnership at the Samandu project in Guinea, um, where by all accounts, the, the teams have actually worked very well together. There's been relatively low tensions, if any, um, and they've been quite effective in finding the areas it's best to pass off work based on, based on the experience and skills of each. Um, so I, my, to, just to, to sum up there, I think the key point there is that Chinese companies do want to learn. They've, they've realized that while there is this narrative about Chinese companies um, collecting assets in Africa, it, that's generally been buying into existing mines. There has, there's been little or no success at all at developing their own mines and winning, winning new key um, exciting resources. And I think they're looking for these partnerships with Western firms to improve their standards over the long term and improve the quality of, of, of their own domestic industry. Koba, so let me put this now to you, because from your vantage point in South Africa, where we have seen probably more joint ventures than anywhere else on the continent, whether it's in uh, Beijing Automotive Works and some of their manufacturing that's going on, whether you're seeing some in agriculture. Uh, and, and, and let me just put on you know skepticism here that – I, I really I, – Henry has pointed out Chinalco and a couple other examples of this, but I'm not sure that this can necessarily represent a trend in part because of the distinctive way that the Chinese do business. And sometimes they are just so tough in the way they do business, and it's just not consistent either with African or with Western standards. And I'm wondering, well, you know, let me just ask you the same question. How much potential is this – is there for this, or do you – see it a little bit from where I'm seeing it from, which is this is more a, a hope rather than a reality. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of, I, I think there is scope, um, but a lot of it would depend on, on you know, kind of African corporate structures kind of growing and developing. I think one of the problems is frequently is that, you know, kind of you don't necessarily – have, uh, you know, kind of ready partners, you know, kind of waiting for you in, in Africa, you know, kind of some, you know, because some of the countries are, have very low skills base, some of them are, are quite disrupted in different kind of ways. Um, I think in the case of South Africa, you've seen, you know, we, we've seen 
kind of interesting collaborations between some private Chinese companies, like, for example, a whole lot of, of South Africa's um, cell phone companies. South African cell phone companies are very aggressively expanding right through the whole of, of, of the uh, African continent um, and beyond, actually. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is happening on the back of Huawei technology. Um, so, you know, the, the, those kinds of if, – if there's a corporate, a corporate structure already up and running in Africa, then I think those collaborations – become easier um i think it, in the cases of 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 you know kind of countries where very dependent on resource extraction you know those countries frequently don't have a very high skills base and they don't have a, a very you know kind of developed corporate structure set up and then it, i think it becomes very very hard so henry uh Kobus brings up an excellent point here in the distinction between private sector chinese companies and state-owned chinese companies do you see a difference in terms of the potential cooperation with Western and African companies, this tripartite cooperation you've talked about in the iron ore sector? Uh, do you see a distinction between private and public companies? Absolutely. I, I think that's the crux of the, the, crux of the issue. Um, and between, between state-owned producers, between the larger and smaller ones, whether they're owned by the, the, the top-level state or the federal states underneath them, um, I think it's only really the major state-owned companies that, that are very closely tied in with the government that you, you might look to rely on to have that investor to considerably learn from, from a Western firm. Certainly the private, there's, there's a, litany of, um, a litany of terrible stories of, of Chinese private sector um, mining firms in Africa. And as I detailed in the article, there's a couple of examples of a terror of, of difficulties of, of this sort of relationship in West Africa, um, where a private or smaller state-owned um, firm has been involved. Um, Henry Reuters recently published an article saying that the Chinese, while they 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 still want you know kind of active participation in West African iron ore companies, they they're tending to now to move away from from acquisitions and they're moving towards uh, you know for example. Uh, infrastructure-based deals. Um, is that something that you've seen as well? Um, absolutely. I think and that, that's, a, that's certainly the, the point I was also looking to make in the article is that, um, that a lot of these relationships are built around a particular competency. So with um, African Minerals Mine in, in Sierra Leone, um, their partnership was with the Chinese um, a Chinese infrastructure firm initially to to provide finance for the project, but then also to involve that firm in, in construction of the first phase. And then the subsequent phase with, with potential customers, so um, steel groups um, and trading houses, rather than with, with a fellow mining company. So I think that's been, a, that's been another interesting aspect is looking at potential partners who um, not traditionally also mining firms, but who are either a potential provider or a customer and finding it, finding a sort of a mutual agenda that way. You mentioned earlier on about this idea of the narrative. And, and it's interesting because what Cobus referenced in this Reuters article about that the Chinese are not seeking to acquire f full ownership of, of iron ore uh, mines and other natural resource mines, uh, but instead they want to get involved in these kinds of investments and they want to stake and they want equity. And that really goes against this idea of the neocolonialism. And you must run into this in your work as a consultant quite a bit uh, that, you know, China in its extraction of natural resources from Africa is basically repeating the same type of behavior that the British, that the 
the French, at the Belgians, who also uh, abused African natural resources and extracted it in a very kind of, uh, again, an imperial capitalist way by bringing natural resources out of Africa and then selling back in uh, Finnish goods. So this idea of the partnership seems to challenge that narrative a little bit because it looks like China is not simply trying to own the entire extraction process. How do you see the trends that are confronting the natural resource extraction industry and business, particularly in the terms of these tripartite relationships you're trying to kind of paint a picture for us, and that prevailing narrative that is still very, very much uh, a, a dominant theme in the West in, their, in the West's understanding of China and Africa. I think that's a it's, a it's an interesting point to raise. I think um, in terms of the ownership issue, um, I think these these partnerships give them some offtake agreements and, and, and considerable stakes in the project. And I suppose, sorry for the boring turn to this again, but I suppose it's this it's this agenda point. Um, I don't think it is. Um, important for, for China's strategic interests to, to own these projects. It's only important for them to secure supply from them. Okay. I think where they fall down and, and where the industry has fallen down generally, um, the, the, the resource industry is failing to understand that the that keeping projects keeping project stakeholders on side, and by that I mean the, the government and the communities, ensuring that they're benefiting in the same way as the company is is now a key part of retaining this social license operate concept, that the, the ability to keep stakeholders on side so that a project can, can continue successfully. And I think that traditionally Chinese firms have struggled with the same issue that Western firms have, have struggled with and have, have since got better at, which is looking to impose a model on, on a country or on a project without enough consideration of, of, the, of the internal um, politics and the, the, the internal economic pressures in, in the country itself. So I think these partnerships help Chinese firms to learn slightly from the mistakes that Western firms have made in the past in a similar way. And I would, my feeling on the broader sort of resource, uh, the, the broader nationalism and, and, um, and neo-colonialist point is that China's operating in a, the Chinese firms are operating in a very, very similar way the Western firms, I, I feel this sort of neo-colonial point is overstated, um, and that the, the the difference is simply that they don't have a stronger knowledge of how to manage stakeholders in a, in a way that allows them to develop projects in the long run, which is in a responsible way. Well, Cobus, let me put the same question to you as we kind of wrap up the show and get your final thoughts on the subject. How do you feel that the trends in the, particularly in the iron ore sector, where China is the world's largest importer of iron ore, but at the same time now seems to be changing its strategy in terms of acquisition of that of that mineral, and and how do you think that challenges or in maybe even confirms the narrative, but one that you and I get very frustrated about in terms of this neo-colonial uh, type of uh, of meme that's out there. You know, yeah, it's it's you know, iron ore issues, mining issues. They're they're not really my field, but from what I what I can judge, you know, the fact that China, we we what you know, kind of the the incredible need that China has for iron ore. That you know, kind of that itself, obviously, is a historical phase. And as the Chinese government is trying to move to move its economy from from manufacturing, clo- you know, more in the direction of of consumption. That will obviously, you know, that that will affect that relationship as well. Um, you know, so it, it might be that this kind of narrative of China as this, this voracious kind of neo-colonial power that itself is this kind of is a historical moment, um, and we might be moving. We might 
we're probably not at the end of that moment, but you know, kind of, we we're probably moving in the direction of the end of that kind of discourse, possibly in the future. You know, kind of, um, it'll be interesting to see how economic changes in China, you know, kind of affect these kind of uh, these industries in Africa, and whether there's going to be a narrative at some stage of Africa being abandoned by China later. Um, you know, yeah, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Well, the article is ironclad mining partnerships with uh, Chinese firms in West Africa. Uh, it's a fascinating article. Once again, it, it adds a wrinkle to a lot of the narratives that are out there in the public discourse and particularly in the media in terms of China's strategy and its natural resource extraction agenda in Africa, particularly in West Africa. Henry Hall is the editor of China Africa News. Uh, you know, Henry, thank you so much for joining us on the show. One of the things that we do at the end of every show is we want to kind of guide people to what you're writing, what you're doing, what you're reading, and how people can follow you on the web. What's the best way if they want to stay in touch with you where, for, for them to get a hold of you? Um, just through ChinaAfricanNews.com and there's the um, sign-up form there for any blogs or newsletters that I write, so please just sign up to that. Excellent. And the, the best way to get a hold of Cobus and myself is on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project, where a lot of the conversations that we have on the podcast are also carried out online. Uh, and we've, what now, Cobus, we're at 128,000 followers. We're just humbled by the, the, the response that we've gotten and also by the, the really the intensity of the conversations that go on there. This is a fantastic discussion. Once again, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, Cobus, if, uh, if they can't find you there, where else can they follow you? They can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Stadnesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China Africa headlines almost every day. Uh, and if you want to follow this podcast, the best way is on iTunes. Just search for China Africa Project. But uh, if you're on the, on the BlackBerry Network in South Africa, you can find us there. We're on Stitcher, on SoundCloud. Uh, we're even on the Amazon Kindle now. So uh, go figure. Uh, so we'd love for to hear from you again. Drop us a note uh, on our Facebook page or via Twitter and let us know what you think of the show. And until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Oh, 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 oh